Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We will not finish the chapter 1 today. We'll just be in verse 10. And I want us to look at this uh, prophecy of Paul concerning Christ being glorified and admired by all them that believe and how we can apply that to us today. So first, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and let's open with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we do ask for your help this morning, Lord. We ask that you'd help us to apply what we read, and Lord, to just focus on you as our Savior this morning, and to admire you, Lord, for all the many things that you are, and the things that we know you are, but someday our faith will be sight, and we'll see those things as you rule and reign here on this earth. We thank you for that. Help us to humbly approach you this morning with a heart ready to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. When he, Christ, shall come to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. That's the full thought. Then we have the parenthetical thought, because our testimony among you was believed. So as we consider on, uh, as we continue on in this main theme of God's justice, this is our driving thought this morning. Live like you are anticipating the return of the risen king of justice. But Paul makes it an uh, interesting statement here through the moving of the spirit and says that Christ will be admired. And as I thought about that, and I looked into that word, the word admired is the same word we often see translated um, Lost it somewhere. I must have done away with the slide. That's all right. I thought I had it up there. But uh, the word admired is the same word that is often translated to wonder at or to marvel. And uh, throughout the Gospels, when it says that perhaps Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion, or the people marveled at the works of Christ, or they wondered with great amazement, that's the same idea. So when Christ comes back in his uh, physical presence and we see him return as the king of all the earth, in that day, this is talking about the second coming of Christ, uh, it says that we will admire him, we will wonder at him, we'll be amazed at him. And though there are many different reasons that we could consider why this would be so, I want us to look at five basic reasons that you and I will admire and should admire even now our Savior. But won't it be amazing to admire him in his physical presence when he actually returns? You know, our faith will be sight. And we see those things, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We know they will be true. We know he, he is worthy of admiration. But what a thing it will be when we see him as actual king in Jerusalem, subjecting all the enemies of Christ and gathering to himself Israel, and we are able to serve him. If you are saved, you will be there. Now, I don't know what job you'll have. I don't know what job I'll have, but we'll have a job of serving the king in the millennial kingdom. So our first point and our only point, and we'll consider five subpoints from this, the king of justice is coming for his kingdom. But why should we admire him? Well, first of all, we should admire him for his holiness. Uh, go with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 7, or Daniel chapter 10, excuse me. We'll reference Daniel 7 as well, but go to Daniel chapter 10. This is one of my favorite passages uh, really, any passage in the Old Testament prophets is probably could be labeled one of my favorite passages. But Daniel chapter 10, look at verse 4 with me. Uh, Daniel is fasting. He is seeking God's face. Um, he knows that uh, Cyrus has taken the throne. And, you know, in the return of his people, the 70 years is coming up 
for the promise that Israel would be able to return and rebuild. And so all these things are weighing on his heart. He's, he's fasting, he's seeking God's face, and he sees an amazing vision in verse 4. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hiddekel, or the Tigris as we would know it, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of euphaz. His body also was like the beryl, which would be a deep sea green stone. And if it was pure beryl, it would be actually transparent, or it could even be a deep reddish, pinkish color. But it's a very precious, beautiful stone, often referenced in scripture. And his face is the appearance of lightning. Does that sound familiar concerning the uh, glorification of Christ on the top of the mount in Matthew 17? But his holiness, uh, uh, no longer that uh, him setting aside his glory, but we see that full manifestation of his glory, this being, of course, a Christophany. And his face is the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord uh, are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth for the purpose of showing himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. And God's eyes of fiery judgment can see through everything. My heart, yours, all that's going on in the world, all the corruption, all the wickedness, and every last thing is recorded in the books of God's judgment. And his arms and his feet, like in color to polished brass, having borne uh, the judgment of God. I don't want to get too far off, carried away in uh, symbolism, but I do believe there's some application there for this. And the voice of his words, like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them. The very presence of God's holiness, though they saw nothing, was too much. It was overwhelming, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me for my comeliness, any righteousness that he had. Daniel, of course, being one that we would hold up as a great example for us. But look at the result of even him and his great character. He was still just a man. My comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. And in the face of God Almighty and his holiness, we have nothing to offer. And our very best is his filthy rags. Yet I heard the voice of his words. And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground. Uh, reference over here to Revelation chapter 1. And we see almost word for word the same account. Of course, John being on the Isle of Patmos, having been exiled there by the, uh, the uh, Caesar of uh, Rome, the emperor of Rome. And he's here and he sees the, revela the, the revelation concerning end times. Look at verse 12 of Revelation chapter 1. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps of the chest with a, a, girden, a golden <laughs> girdle, excuse me, his head and his hairs were white, like wool, as white as snow. Where else in the Old Testament do you see uh, the, the divine king referenced his garment being white as snow and his hair uh, like the pure wool? Anybody remember that? 
Daniel chapter 7, right? And here we see a very clear relation of Christ as God linked to the Father. And that, that revelation that Daniel saw in Daniel 7 was clearly God the Father, because then we see the Son, one like unto the Son of Man, uh, come nigh and is given unto him a kingdom and power and authority and great glory. And so I just thought that was interesting. And uh, his hair is white as wool, uh, as white as snow, and his eyes, again, we see as a flame of fire. And his feet, like in a fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, which we, if we compared with other scriptures, we would find it is the word of God. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. We should admire him, my friends, for his holiness. And this is what, uh, you know, we don't practice, or I hope we're practicing, holy living. But we don't do that for the motive of outdoing each other. And that is really where our religion is different from the world's. Uh, somebody asked me one time, well, you know, this person over here, they don't claim to be a Christian, but they have great morals, and they live even a better life than I do sometimes. How is that? I said, well, what's their motive? Now, what's your motive? What's mine? And so our motive should be we want to be holy because as he which hath called you is holy. So be holy or separated. That dirty word we don't like to mention much anymore, right? Separated. I heard it in a message last night as I listened to a pastor in Tennessee. And it uh, was encouraging that he talked about separation from the pulpit. And it refreshed my soul. But uh, be holy even as he which hath called you is holy, right? And holy and separated in our thoughts. Uh, it's really pointless to talk about separating in our entertainment, in our music, in our dress, in, uh, in the where we go and why we go, where we go, where we work, if our thoughts and our heart aren't first separated unto God, because that's where it all starts. And so we grab a, we, we understand his holiness, and it overpowers us. The love of Christ overpowers us, and we want to be as he is. We want to reflect that here on earth. But not only should we admire him for his holiness... We should admire him for his love. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Revelation 5, 6 through 10. John goes on and writes, and he says, Concerning Christ, pictured as the slain Lamb of God, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a Lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth, into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand, or that is the, the scroll that had been sealed with seven seals. And the idea is it's a scroll rolled up, and you break a seal, and you read a part, and you break another seal, and you read a part, and so forth and so on. It's the title deed to earth, and only Christ has the right to grab it. Having seven eyes, horns, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth, I believe that has to do with his completeness and his perfection. But there's room for discussion on that. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials or bowls full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Praise God for his love. Take a wretched sinner like myself, hell-bound, deserving of absolutely nothing, and to make me both a king and a priest to God. 
You know, it's interesting as you read through uh, uh, one argument for holy living, one argument for um, not being an alcohol-consuming Christian, not being uh, certain things. If you read uh, Proverbs chapter 30 and all the things that the king is encouraged to be there, uh, you will find that he is encouraged to be a separate. He's encouraged not to be one that's given to wine. He's encouraged not to be one who's unjust. And if you think about what you and I are to God as kings and priests, it's a good uh, correlation. But we admire him for his love. We admire him for being the one who has taken us out of the dregs of hell. And out of his holiness flows his love. Without his holiness, there would be no love. We just read about John falling before the feet of Christ as dead. But what do we see right after that? We see Christ, this holy God, one that uh, makes you want to fall at his feet as dead because he's so pure. Yet he lays his hand upon John and says, Fear not. Behold, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I live forevermore and have the keys of death and of hell. Amen. Even in that middle of that awesome scene, we see Christ's love. We see Christ's love. So we should admire him for his love. And in turn, we should show that love to other people. Why do we um, show kindness and compassion to people who are downright rude and nasty? I'll tell you why. It's because God showed it to me when I didn't deserve it. And I don't deserve it every day. I received some communication with someone the other day that was not edifying. And that was basically a kick in the face, so to speak, uh, of something I tried to reach out. And uh, was not expecting that response. And God had to remind me, how many times have you done something like that to someone, Christopher? How many times did you do that to me? And yet I reached out in love and was patient. And so the love of Christ constrains us, right? It, it constrains us. We're to be grateful for it. And we are to admire it. And surely it will be one thing totally different to admire it face to face in that day. We will admire him for his fellowship. Uh, look at John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And we could cross-reference this to many different passages. But John chapter 17, Christ is in the garden. And uh, he is uh, there. He is praying for his disciples. He is about to go to the cross. And verse uh, 24 of John 17, Christ prays and says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. What did Christ say over in John chapter 14? Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And so here's the Savior of the universe, the creator of all things, desiring fellowship with me, a wretched sinner saved by grace. What an amazing thing that is. And not only fellowship here on this earth, but he wants me to be wherever he is. And uh, this is uh, just one more of many <laughs> plugs for eternal security. That here's Christ praying to the Father who denies him nothing because they are of one mind, of one spirit, of one thought, and says, I will that where I am, these may be also. And you'll notice there was nothing in there about as long as they persevere, as long as they do a good job, as long as they don't deny my name or fall away or go after the world like Demas. He just said, I want them to be where I am. Yeah, there's a loss of reward for sure. And there is such a thing as being ashamed at his coming. And there's such a thing as not having confidence before him at the presence of his coming. But there's no such thing as being 
re, our salvation being revoked at his coming. And so we praise him. We admire him for his fellowship. It is an eternal fellowship. It's a glorious fellowship. And it's one reason that we should, as his people, desire fellowship with him. And I'll tell you one thing. When our thoughts are consumed with the things of the world, that fellowship is broken. And it is hindered. Keep your mind in the Bible. Keep your mind in prayer. I was asked the other day by someone, do you think you'll ever get close enough to God to just know what you should and shouldn't do? I said, well, if that were true, uh, then I wouldn't have to pray like I should. And I wouldn't be in the Bible like I should. Because all of a sudden I would just be knowing what I ought to do. And I said that would decrease my dependency upon God and become an arrogant fool. And she was like, well, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, So we praise him for his fellowship. We also praise him for his faithfulness to the patriarchs. Uh, I want you to turn to Isaiah, if you would, chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. Tremendous, tremendous verses here in Isaiah chapter 25. You know, um, ever since I can remember, Israel's been hounded and hated. And uh, they've been hounded and hated for a long time. But uh, someday God's going to come back and he's going to make that fought over controversial little land the center of his kingdom and there's no longer going to be a question about who the land belongs to it belongs to God and because of that it belongs to Israel and uh, he will restore it to its rightful owners but look at Isaiah chapter 25 in view of that in light of what is coming Isaiah picks up his pen and writes these inspired words O Lord thou art my God I will exalt thee I will praise thy name For thou hast done wonderful things. The root of that Hebrew word, Pele, is the same word uh, root translated, um, his name shall be called Wonderful. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For thou hast made of a city and heap, of a defense city a ruin, a a palace of strangers, to be no city. It shall never be built. Talking about the destruction of God's enemies. I understand there was some application to Isaiah in his day concerning the Assyrians, concerning even the Babylonians, but understand there is also apocalyptic tones to this entire thing, and we'll see that as we go on. Uh, uh, Old Testament prophecies all uh, many times had what we would call double meanings. And um, anyway, therefore shall the strong people glorify thee. The city of the terrible nations shall fear thee. God is going to subject the entire earth. And uh, even Egypt, and you can read about that in Zechariah, and what will happen to them if they do not come to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm. Think about a Middle Eastern dust storm, a shadow from the heat. When the blast of the terrible ones, think about that storm blasting against the wall, that dust storm that if you don't hide yourself, you'll be suffocated. And Isaiah gives us the word picture of someone hunkering down beside a brick wall or stone wall and the blast on the other side and them finding refuge behind that wall. And the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud. How does, what does a cloud do to break the monotonous heat in the summertime? It's refreshing, isn't it? And he likens the destruction of the wicked and their persecution of Israel and God's people with that uh, word picture. It shall be brought low. And in this mountain, the mount of God, the mount Zion, shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of, wine, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined, 
And this is not a passage that allows you and me to go have a, a glass of wine. I'm not going to get into it. I don't want to get sidetracked, but uh, that's not the application. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? He said, when the veil shall be taken away, their hearts shall be turned unto the Lord. And when Christ comes back, after he has brought his people through the tribulation, after he has purged them, after he has accomplished to break the power of the holy people in Daniel chapter 12, they will look on him whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and he that is in heaviness for his firstborn. And they shall mourn apart, the David of, house of David apart, and the house of Nathan apart, and their women apart, and their wives apart. And what? A fountain of cleansing shall be opened for sin. And so we shall see the heart of his people. And so all Israel, Paul would say it this way. And so all Israel shall be saved. What a beautiful thing that will be. God will restore Israel. And will bring their heart again. He'll take away that veil of unbelief. And he'll take away that veil of unbelief that covers the entire world. I believe part of that's due to the fact that the king of unbelief, Satan, will be bound a thousand years and cast into the bottomless pit. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God, and we have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, he will be, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down for the dunghill. And he shall be spread forth his hands in the midst of them, as he that swimmeth spreadeth forth his hands to swim. And he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands. And the fortress of the high fort of thy walls shall he bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground even to the dust. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. And here it is. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever. For in Yah Yehovah, that would be the Hebrew saying of it, is everlasting strength. And you see here, this is, and I don't endorse this drawing because I don't know if this man is going off of uh, reeds or cubits, okay, concerning the prophecies of Ezekiel 40 through 48. But this is a derivation of the land division for what we see in Ezekiel chapter 48. And you can see it's just one on top of the other, and this is how God lays it out. Now, his dimensions may be off, but he is correct in how he laid out the nations. And here, there in the middle, the white part, is the holy portion that God told Ezekiel, you will allot for my temple. It's 50 miles by 50 miles by 50 miles by 50 miles if we go by reeds according to what Ezekiel says. Though there's controversy on that, I go with what the translators chose and they chose reeds. And I think they're correct in that. So we see the L stands for the, Levit uh, the Levitical portion, the holy portion for the, the Levites. We see the sanctuary in the middle. And uh, we see a one square acre mile area right in the middle of that where God's sanctuary will dwell. And then where we'll see in a minute, God says, this will be the place of my feet and the place of my throne. And the south of that, we see where it says, see, that is the city, the holy city of Jerusalem, the new uh, millennial Jerusalem, not the new Jerusalem, but the new millennial Jerusalem. And then there's a profane place on either side of that where the X's are for suburbs and such and for growing of food for the sustenance of the city. And then we see the P, which is for the prince, um, uh, which I believe is a resurrected David. But um, be that uh, one way or the other, God will restore Israel. And this is what it's going to look like. Uh, and if you read the dimensions of Ezekiel, it's going to have to be bigger than what's currently there. Because there's just not room for it if we go by reeds. 
the 50 miles by 50 miles by 50 miles alone won't fit there, much less a spot on either side of it for the prince. But God's faithfulness, my friends, is to the patriarchs. His promises will be fulfilled. And what a thing to admire him for when we actually get to see that. Let's, uh, I'm going to save this for the end. I want us to come back to Isaiah 26. I'm going to teach you how to sing this. And uh, don't, don't be scared. It'll actually be quite simple. We will admire him for his kingship and priesthood. Go to Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel chapter 43. Here we have um, a sad account. But take heart, it's not permanent. First of all, we have to visit Ezekiel chapter 10. This is the sad part, Ezekiel chapter 10. And Ezekiel says, and in the sixth year, and he's going off the chronology of the captivity of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim and, and, and various other things. Uh, but he says in the sixth year of Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, and he calls it the sixth year and back in chapter 8. Then I looked and behold in the firmament there was above the head of the uh, cherubim There appeared over them, as it were, a sapphire stone as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And he spake unto the man clothed with linen and said, Go in between the wheels, even unto the cherub, and fill thine hand with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in in my sight. Now the cherubim stood on the right side of the house. This is the temple. It's a vision of the then current uh, Solomonic temple that existed in Jerusalem. Babylon had not yet come. That would take place in the 12th year of Ezekiel's chronology. So God's getting ready to to destroy the city and he's getting ready to withdraw his glory from the temple. Now, then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub. This is the throne chariot of God that we've looked at in the past and stood over the threshold of the house and the house was filled with the cloud And the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And then look at chapter 11. We see judgments pronounced. We see um, people die. And we see the coming judgments of the Babylonians pronounced. And then in chapter 11, verse 22, Then did the cherubim lift up their wings, and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above, and the glory of the God of the Lord, Jehovah, went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Which mountain is that? Somebody tell me. Just spit it out. It's the only mountain on the east side of the city. Olives, thank you. It's the Mount of Olives. So here we see God's glory depart. And nowhere else in the Old Testament do we see it return until we get to Ezekiel chapter 43. The city is then destroyed in chapter 12, or uh, then destroyed in the 12th year, and we read that in Ezekiel. And God's glory has not yet been back to his temple. All right, now there is no temple, right? But in Ezekiel chapter 43, after the dimensions of the house are given, the dimensions of the most holy place are given, and Ezekiel 40 through 48 is entirely a prophecy of the future millennial division of the land and the millennial temple in which Christ will sit and reign. And he says in chapter 43, Afterward he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. And behold, the glory of the Lord, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. And his voice was like a noise of many waters. And the earth shined with his glory. Sound familiar? And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. 
And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell upon my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east, toward that eastern gate in that previous slide that we just saw. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And that hasn't happened since before 586 B.C., friends. And I heard him speaking unto me out of the house. And the man stood by me. And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, and my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile. What piece of furniture did not exist in the old um, tabernacle or even Solomon's temple? Somebody tell me. I know you know it. There was a table. There was a candlestick. There was an incense altar. There was, at one point, the Ten Commandments and the Ark of the Covenant. What was not there? Place to sit down, right? The work had not been finished. But here we find in the Millennial Temple, we see, says, the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet. And if we go to Zechariah chapter 6, what do we find Christ there referred to? The branch. And it says that he will be both king and priest, and and he shall bring peace between them both, those two offices. And so we adore him in the Millennial Kingdom for his kingship and for his priesthood. Uh, As we wrap things up, let's turn over back to Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah chapter 26 and... Do you all know the tune, What Child Is This? The old English tune, Green Sleeves. We all have sung that many times, right? What Child Is This? The meter of What Child Is This fits Isaiah 26, 1 through 4 very well. And uh, I would like to learn this as a Sunday school class. And it, it won't be just today that we'll practice it. It'll be something that we will, every time I teach, we'll run through it once or twice. But I think this will be an encouragement to you. It has been for me. And... Um, we can also learn how to sing Isaiah chapter 12, which is also a song that will be sung in the Millennial Kingdom. But um, I will sing through it. I believe you'll be able to just jump in and kind of pick it up. We will repeat some phrases more than once just to help things flow. We'll leave off a word or two here just to help things flow. But all in all, we'll cover all the verses and we'll sing the whole thing. Okay, here we go. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. We have a strong city. The chorus. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation may enter in. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation may enter. Now when we get to verse 4, say with me if you would, 
Yah Yehovah, as it says in the Hebrew text. You can say Lord Jehovah, that's fine, but if you have a desire to, sing it in a Hebrew fashion, sing Yah Yehovah with me in verse 4. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee, because he trusteth in thee. On the chorus. Trust ye in the Lord forever, in the Lord forever. For in Yah, Jehovah is everlasting strength. You have a hard time memorizing scripture? This is one really good way to do it. Uh, music is a really good way to help us uh, remember things. So we admire him for his holiness. We admire him for his love, but without his holiness, there would be no love. Never forget that. We admire him for his fellowship. We admire him for his faithfulness to the patriarchs and henceforth his faithfulness to us, to all people, right? Because in, the, in Abraham, the patriarch, shall all nations be blessed through Christ. And we admire him for his kingship, for his priesthood. And so our final thought, live like you are anticipating the return of the risen king of justice. And uh, maybe turn off Facebook, turn off the news. And sing Isaiah 26. It might really be an encouragement to us. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that uh, Paul lays out here. That uh, you shall come to be glorified in your saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. And that's true because their testimony, Lord, that you've given was believed by us. And so we will be there to see that. And we're most grateful. We humbly thank you. Help us to live like kingdom citizens separated from the world but still living in the world and being uh, lights and uh, beacons for Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.